Lucky Land slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Since you've obviously came out on that, has all the reaction been quite positive or have you had some negative sort of like feedback and stuff? Well, I haven't heard from the Russians, <laughs> but as, as far as negative uh, reactions, I had just one while I was in, uh, it was early on after my book got released when I did a, I gave a presentation someplace in, in, uh, <clears throat> in uh, Pennsylvania and some lady was very hostile asking, so why the heck are you not in jail? I mean, it was like the tone, the question is legit, but that was the only one, everything else is at worst neutral but uh, you know some people just don't care which is fine you know yeah uh, but but the reaction is phenomenally positive because um you know i'm so aggressively pro american these days and that's not that's not you know uh that's not a show i'm put on because a, a german friend of mine uh reminded me once he said uh there's a famous line from a um uh, by, written by by a German uh, poet or something like that. And it goes like, uh, he whose bread I eat, his whose song I sing. And I said to him, no, uh, <laughs> I, I would sing the song and I don't get much bread anyway. <laughs> what was it like growing up in East Germany? Because we're obviously in England, we're, we were obviously more in favor of the West and things like that. East Germany towards what we see on documentaries and stuff, that looked like a bit of a harsh life to come from to before America. Yeah, um, I just went through yesterday through a bunch of pictures in succession uh, <clears throat> to remind me what it was like. <clears throat> so I grew up in a, in a small village in an area uh, of Germany that was traditionally poor. And it was just about uh, 70 miles northeast of the city of Dresden, which was totally destroyed in, in World War II. And so, but I, I grew up in the country there, just on the border with Poland. And um, we were all poor. We, we just didn't know it. Um, there's a picture that <laughs> that is a really terrible that... Uh, uh, in, in that picture, I'm 12 years old, I believe, and I am thin as a rail. And I shared that once with, a, with an old friend of mine <clears throat> in Germany, and he, he said to me, well, don't you know that we were called potato babies? I said, what do you mean by potato babies? Well, because most of you, our nutrition came from potatoes. So we didn't have enough protein. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was sick a lot. And, uh, you know, to me, being sick was like normal. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I, I was not allowed to play sports because my heart, uh, my internal organs hadn't kept up with that growth, you know, <clears throat> the uh, the vertical growth. Um, I had a hard time learning how to swim because I, I couldn't breathe. It all settled. So by the time it uh, I went to high school, I was uh, I was fourteen. The food became better. There there were. Mm, 
proteins available and you know meat on saturday no sunday soup was saturday uh and uh and i finally you know became comfortable with my physicality so i, and I became a halfway decent athlete i actually in in the the last grade i got in phys ed was an a so so i caught up all right I, but it go ahead Oh, no, it must have been tough, though, because like from an English point of view, we, we know about the World War, how it started during the war. But there's very, very little known what happened to Germany just after the war. Do you know what I mean? Then, then years after the war, it just seems to be a bit of a blank in a lot of people's history. So because people just forget a lot of the people in Germany weren't for the Nazi regime and things like that, were they? <laughs> they were just sort of there and everyone yeah, just got well, caught in the crossfire. Yeah, but, you know, you've got to blame the German people for allowing Hitler to come to power. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think, I, let me see if I remember this quote, I forgot who said that, but, but it goes like, uh, the, the only way for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a paraphrase, but, but that's what happened. You know, I, <clears throat> it's probably understandable that I, I did a lot of uh, research into the history of Germany and how it came that this the guy who looked like a clown, uh, this Hitler guy, got to power in a country that at a time may have been the most advanced with regard to the sciences and uh, and the arts in the world. And it's just because people were passive, okay, and uh, and and then and then they were in denial, you know, like you would have asked. Uh, you know, ordinary uh, Germans after the end of the war, if they ever knew about concentration camps, no, nobody knew anything. Even the ones that were like only 10 miles, uh, lived 10 miles away from one of those concentration camps, they were in denial. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, quite frankly, in East Germany, uh, the, the communists that were eventually becoming uh, the un <clears throat> unchallenged rulers, uh, dealt with the Nazi uh, history very aggressively. For instance, in the school system, uh, anybody who had been a member of the Nazi party or somehow was known to have uh, fully cooperated with the Nazis was fired. That's how my parents became teachers. They, uh, they had, they were, my father was um, 28, uh, 45, 30, 15, 18, 18 years old, he had, he had almost finished high school. Uh, that, that was at the end of the war. <clears throat> and, and my mother actually had finished high school. They were recruited at, and, and went through like six month high intens intensity uh, training to become teachers. And a lot of the teachers that uh, I had were all new ones. And some of them weren't academically that good, but there were no Nazis, none. Um, so that doesn't mean that the communists were good. They were just the evil people on the other side. Yeah. They, were they, were, they were fighting the Nazis. It was a, the Communist Party was the only organization that would go out and fight the, the brown shirts in the streets when, at a time when, when the Nazis were not yet in power. Had they won then, uh, I don't know what the result would have been. It certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have... Uh, um, attack the, the Soviet Union, 
but the oppression of its own people would have been very similar. Maybe, maybe the anti, you know, you can't speculate much, but neither, neither extreme is, is preferable. They're both bad. Ideally, you want something in the middle, don't you? Like, because uh, there was like communism and capitalism. I, in my mind, I, I like aspects of both, like socialism looking after workers, but it's too far and capitalism. You've got to have that happy medium, but I'd probably lean a little bit more towards capitalism. But everyone has a different philosophy on it. But when you look at history and things like that, it just yeah. communism so, so doesn't seem to work. He, 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 no, it doesn't. As, as a matter of fact, you, know, um, you point to me one communist country in the history, one country that actually implemented communism the way it was... Uh, you know, laid out by Karl Marx and Engels, that didn't become a dictatorship. Yeah, every one of them did, and it had something to do with the. If you centralize everything, eventually um, that that pyramid will go bad, because there are going to be bad people getting to the top. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and in, and in communist countries, you know, you take Cuba, you 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 take uh, uh, the Soviet Union, East Germany. Um, they, the communist leaders actually wound up uh, killing one another. They were, the purges under Stalin were, were tremendous. I mean, he at one point in 1937-38, uh, he had a purge uh, going on at, that wound up executing about 2 million people. And a lot of them were party members. Yeah. And, half, and it was half the Central Committee got killed. So, so that certainly doesn't work economically. It doesn't work because you know there was no communist and no collectivist kind of nation that could compete with raw capitalism the concern that i have with capitalism which uh, is is getting stronger is it it's not regulated well and uh, the rule makers are now more or less the ones that are in power and they make rules that only they understand and they and they're good for them so so we don't have the the checks and balances, the way uh, they, they were better fifty years ago. So that's that's my my concern. It, it, we need to find a way, and 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 if we had, if we didn't have a political class that was entrenched in and and was is only interested in staying in power, if we had the same setup that the United States has when it was first founded that you know, the government, the people that were elected would go to DC for three months and do what they had to do. Then they go home and, and do what they normally do in real life. Uh, so if, if, if something like this could be reestablished, uh, I, think, I think the capitalist system would, would work really well. Did, did you ever think as a young lad in East Germany, you'd ever be in the military, obviously, as a spy or anything like that when you were a youngster? <laughs> no. Did you ever think like, I know if people have dreams of being a footballer or being in the yeah. military and stuff like that. Was that anything you ever thought would happen to you? No, I had actually, I, I didn't have big dreams, period. You know, even when, when it came to uh, deciding what I should study in college, I was, I really, I had no passion for it anything i knew i liked a lot of things i like i liked the arts i liked sports I, I i i was pretty good in music uh but my outstanding abilities were sort of in in the in the realm of thinking you know uh 
So eventually, I said, it was almost by default, I said, yeah, okay, I'm going to study chemistry. And at that point, the only dream that I ever had was to become a tenured professor. That was uh, because uh, you know that better than the Americans. Uh, tenured professors are not as wide, you know, they're not as many in, in Europe as there are in the United States. If you are a tenured professor, you are part of the elite. All right, you're and you're well paid and you're highly regarded. That's what I wanted to be. <clears throat> never, never, never had even an inkling of a thought that I would want to be a spy or that I uh, would qualify to uh, becoming a spy. And so when I was initially approached by the KGB, that was a surprise. And, and one of the uh, one of my uh, very well developed character traits is curiosity. So when they came to me and said, well, why don't we develop a relationship? I was like, yeah, sure. I wanted to find out what's, what, what's it all about. Uh, I really, even at that point, I was just playing around. I, said, I, I wasn't really thinking this through and saying, well, hey, if I start talking with them, eventually I have to do this, this, and this. No. <laughs> that, that eventually became more of a reality when I was asked point blank by one of by, by who was probably the head of the KGB in, in East Germany in Berlin when he asked a, when I had a meeting with him and and his his sole purpose was to nail me down and in the middle of a conversation that he said you know okay so I want to know are you in or not <laughs> I was not prepared for that question, so I stalled, um, and I came up with a bunch of things that I, could, I you know, I'm not trained. I, I don't know. I, I, I know some things, but I need to learn a whole lot more. He said he cut me off. He said, "Don't worry about it. We'll take care of that. I just need to know if you're in or not." And we don't like people who take a long time to make up their mind. So you got until noon tomorrow. Did, did, when you get offered to be a spy, did they offer you like a contract or anything like that, money-wise? This is how much you'll make. This is how long no, the contract like, will be. This is really totally bizarre. Uh, there was nothing ever in writing. Uh, <clears throat> it was all verbal. When they told me how much money they would be paying me, that was a little more than I... I was already an assistant professor at the time at the university. It was a little more than I was make, make, making as an assistant professor. And the only thing I ever signed, believe it or not, the only thing I ever signed was a promise to never ever uh, share the algorithm that I was given to uh, uh, encrypt and, and decrypt messages, nothing else. And, <clears throat> and it didn't bother me, just like I trusted them, I was just, pretty blind trust, but that was based on the fact that I knew this was, which was completely false knowledge, but based on the propaganda that we were, had been subject to, uh, I knew that the KGB was, was just to be trusted. It was one of the best, uh, the, the, the most noble organizations ever. That, yeah. That's what I thought. And so <clears throat> that's all. Every, everything else was nothing but verbal. And I just wanted to add, I was never considered an employee. It wasn't out, spoken out loud, but 
I didn't get a rank. If Russians who joined the KGB got a rank, and then they were even promoted to higher ranks and so forth, I had no rank. I had no serial number. And uh, uh, so I, I think I just was a, an independent contractor. <laughs> did, did we, like, you won't have been allowed to tell anyone, will you, or things like that? Were you allowed to tell family or anyone, or did you just have to say, I'm working for the government now? And you're not allowed to say what capacity, or were you allowed to tell? Oh no! It's not. See, the 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 moment I said yes, no, not that not that moment. Then it took uh, about six weeks for me to <clears throat> uh, disentangle myself from the university. I had to quit the job, and uh, that had to be done uh, not the regular way because they would. You you can't just quit. And in East Germany, you quit. So there's no other jobs for you. You, you are where you are. So that had to be done through the uh, university party organization. Uh, and the fellow who handled that was not a novice. When I, when I went to his office to hand in my party document, which was a requirement, he, uh, he looked at me and he said, um, you know, thank you for what, you, what you're doing. We know that, uh, I know that most of us will never know the contributions that you will be making. He knew, but that was it. Everything else, uh, my, my cover story when I went from uh, uh, the city where I, study, where I studied and worked uh, to go to Berlin for training, my cover story was that uh, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I would join the foreign ministry, the, the State Department, and become a diplomat. I didn't even get a piece of paper to, to, <laughs> to show people. When, so when, when I told my mother, she went like, huh? And uh, luckily, uh, when I disclosed my change uh, from the university to, to the State Department, my brother was present. Because the next thing after her, she said, are you a spy? <laughs> She was onto something, and my my brother saved the day. He said, "Nah, nah, nah. He's not. He he wouldn't do something like that." Case closed. Uh, so she then believed, and and everybody else that uh, that I had to say goodbye to, I was just telling the same story, and they all believed it. I, you know, nobody questioned it openly, and you know there may have been some people. I got. I think my best friend. Uh, in college and, and still my best German friend, uh, period, he knew that I was lying, but he was as hardcore a communist as I was. And he wound up, he already had a, an unofficial relationship with a Stasi. So, so <clears throat> the East German intelligence agency, and he wound up as an employee of the Stasi as a as a scientist, so so he he sort of knew he didn't know any details, but he knew that I wasn't going to be a diplomat. <laughs> when you start training for being a spy, like we've got James Bond in England, obviously that is just Hollywood and things like that. But they they give you like how he goes into training, people who are working under him, and things like that. What what what's being a spy really like? The training for it? how many years is it? <clears throat> you can you can ask anybody, not just me. You know, I have a lot of friends <clears throat> nowadays who who are uh, retired from the espionage game, FBI, CIA, NSA. I even know somebody from the FSB. 
uh, and uh, and a couple of other intelligence services, they will all tell you the same thing. It can get very boring. So 90%, if you are in the field, you know, there's there's the analysts, you know, they, they just never move from their desk. Their life is rather, you know, it's like, like it's a desk job. It's no, but if you're in the field, uh, you spend a lot of time waiting. And then, but then you need to be on when there's, there's the short bursts of action. Uh, so you cannot possibly make a realistic movie uh, and have it, and, and, and this being entertaining because it's just, it's like watching paint dry. And by the time you are asleep, asleep something will explode. It's like, what happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, no, no, nothing, nothing, nothing like it. And then, and, and for instance, uh, unlike the, the CIA, which had and still has uh, people in classes, they train together. Uh, <clears throat> my, my training was one-on-one. -on -one. Was that one -on -one. in Germany or did you go to, to Russia for your training? Uh, yes, and I was spent two, two years in Moscow to, um, to the extent it was possible to perf perfect uh, my American brand of English. I had a tutor in Moscow who was trusted by the KGB. We, they didn't have somebody like that in, in East Germany. And, uh, you know, I spent two years with her one-on-one. -on -one. I, I forgot whether it was once a week or twice a week. I think it was twice a week, uh, about an hour and a half. <clears throat> so, but everything was one-on-one -on -one with a minor exception that when uh, some of the technical stuff, uh, they didn't have, uh, the, the, the technicians, they didn't have somebody who spoke either German or English. So I had my my handler my liaison uh, be present to do the translation but everything everything and i'm uh, i was going to say a while ago that uh the moment i signed up the moment i said yes and i then i corrected myself the moment i i went and took my suitcase and moved north to berlin i became a soviet slash east german state secret I mean, we we were our <clears throat> identity was extremely well protected. So um, when I interacted with uh, other KGB folks, and they were mostly the employees that, <clears throat> that the, the, they were Russians, uh, we used cover names to address each other, and uh, I I have reason to believe that the individual in Moscow Center who made decisions about me, about my tasks, about what to do next and so forth, never met me personally. He didn't have to. Yeah. Right? Be, be, he, all he needed to, to know, so this is, this is the, the, the guy you, you, you are leading. He, he has, he, 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 this is his personality. This is a history. He has a bunch of documents that we wrote up when we met him and, uh, and then you know we'll you decide what to do with them, and so the the, the KGB was excellent, and this is confirmed uh, by FBI and uh, and others who know who know this business. Excellent in compartmentalizing, so that traitors, if they wanted to betray somebody, would have a hard time to even give away one. 
as opposed to, and here's the, here's the, uh, the, uh, op the, the radical opposite uh, the, in the United States, the CIA and the FBI were horrible and still are in this, in, in this respect. Aldrich Ames and Robert Hansen would not have happened in, in, the, in the KGB. I mean, Aldrich Ames uh, gave away the names of dozens of active agents and a lot of them were executed. So, you know, the KGB made a lot of mistakes, but with regard to keeping things secret, they, they were first rate. Well, I, I knew that because there was a drug cartel in Mexico and they, they copied the Russian style. So the pilot only knew the person picking up the person who picked up. They didn't know anyone. So when they got caught, it couldn't yeah. say like they'd never met anyone apart from the person they dealt with. And they said it was like a they copied it from the KGB or something like that. And that was basically their idea. So you couldn't go further up the chain. You could only and, grasp the one person up that they knew. And, you know, the roots of that. Uh... That was in the old days when the communist parties had to go underground, uh, <clears throat> like in Russia. Uh, and, and when the Nazis came to power in Germany, uh, they had underground groups that were also connecting with one another. But it was, um, I think the rule was you, you cannot know more than two other people that are, uh, uh, that are engaged in the same uh stuff that you're engaged in and but they belong to a different cell um <clears throat> what was it like in russia i went to russia two years ago and no. and I, I thought it was great uh the, the kremlin the square and things like that but there wasn't many english-speaking people i can remember being in bars and things and you, I, I my voice was the only me and my missus were the only voice i could hear that was english what was it like for a german in russia because obviously the war had been like i know it was previous but I, was there any friction there still not that i'm aware of but i didn't socialize with ordinary russians right uh i didn't go to moscow to uh, to learn russian and become friends with a bunch of russians so uh, almost all the interaction i had with with one or two exceptions uh was with kgb employees um with regard to moscow <clears throat> the facade was pretty even then you know the red square the that church the um, i forgot what it's called and that's near the red square and in some of the, the the big big uh avenues of the tree lined with these massive buildings left and right it was very impressive but when you when you actually got out of the bus and you walked behind those big buildings it was mud yeah. There was no grass. It was not well maintained. The elevators didn't work. I lived in one of those things, um, and uh, there there was um, there was sloppiness all over the place. And and with regard to uh, buying, I had to buy my own food pretty much. I took you know I I, I took care of my my own sustenance. Uh, breakfast, lunch. I would try to find a good restaurant, which wasn't easy because the real good restaurants were only uh, for people with Western currency. <laughs> yeah. But the, the hypocrisy, right, and, <laughs> uh, that uh, <clears throat> this shows. But so, and, and, and dinners, you know, I, I ate lots of bread. And in the supermarkets, you know, what was always available was canned fish and mineral water. Everything else was, you know, when, when you saw a line uh, in front of a store, you just got in line. You didn't even ask what they got. 
<laughs> because yeah. whatever it was, if you don't want it, somebody else will. <laughs> did, did, when you were doing your training, did you know you were going to get positioned in America? Was that the only place you no. knew right from the start? No, no. It, it was quite obvious that they wanted uh, to send me to West Germany. Uh, <clears throat> um, sidebar, the Stasi had about a thousand illegal agents in West Germany. Why would the Soviets want their own? That means it was proof that they didn't trust each other. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, no, I was uh, one of the first... I, when I first uh, started in Berlin, I got two documents to read. One was a book and the other one was a booklet. The booklet was the Constitution of West Germany. So, duh. <laughs> and the book was the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. I had to study that. <laughs> but, but so, no, I was clearly, the direction was West Germany, which sort of made sense from, from a point of view of, you know, smuggling somebody in. There's no, there's very few cultural differences and, and uh, minor language differences. Uh, but you can, you know, in those days, there were East Germans fleeing still. And you, you I could have wound up in West Germany and, and nobody would have been the wiser. <clears throat> But, but he, and he used to, maybe not an and, but it's an and. Um, one of the requirements of my training was to learn an, a foreign language. Uh, a foreign language that was spoken in Western country, like countries. Uh, I was given a choice between like English, French, and Spanish. And since I was really good in English in high school, I mean, I never studied this. this would, it was so easy for me. I said, well, why don't we do English? And so there we go. And I, they paid for a tutor. I, I started pretty much from scratch, but uh, it took maybe eight, nine months of intense studying. You know, I really threw myself into this with all I had. Um, I was at a point where I was passively fluent. In other words, I could take a book, an English novel and, and read it. Yeah. And so one day I had a visitor from, uh, from Moscow Center that was just, and you know, we had a chat, how's it going? And uh, by the way, how's your English? And I pulled a book uh, from a shelf and I said, I can read that. And the guy said, whoa. And then he, he uh, they made a, uh, provisions to send me a tape recorder and they told me just, you know, say something, what free form, whatever you wanted to say. So I did that. And uh, within a week, I was on a plane to Moscow. Somebody had an idea that they just found a rather special individual. So I had an interview with the person who eventually became my tutor in, in, in Moscow and uh, a professor from <clears throat> the uh, from Moscow University, who was, that was her cover. She was really KGB. Uh, and so we, we just talked for whatever, 45 minutes, an hour. And then the two ladies were asked by the bosses, will he be able to or not? Able to what? Well, pretend, you know, learn English well enough to pretend to have been born in the United States. The Russians said no. The Americans said, I think he could. <laughs> Bingo. Uh, so they figured, give it a try. So, so what 
and that extended my training. I was pretty much finished with regard to operational training. I was ready to go to West Germany. I got a two, two and a half years extra training, which not only language wise, but I also, <clears throat> the, the operational training in Moscow was much better than what I got in Berlin. So, um, I, I, how did you end up going to America from Moscow? Because I can't imagine that you, you'll just get a flight straight from Moscow to America because that just looks a bit suspect, doesn't it? Do, is there ways around it and you, changing a passport and things like that and identity, you, I'm assuming? You, you're on to something that uh, um, you direct flights were absolutely a no no. Yeah. Uh, there should never, you should never, the and counterintelligence should never be able to trace where you came from. And this was most important uh, on my first trip from Moscow to eventually New York. Um, because when I got to the United States, my, my whole story was going to be, I was always here, right? So how do you do that? <clears throat> so uh, it was a rather uh, elaborate uh, trip from Moscow to uh, Belgrade on a plane, from Belgrade to Vienna by train. In Vienna, I, 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 I left Moscow with a West German passport, obviously forged. In Vienna, I met an agent, uh, a KGB agent, and, and he gave me a different West German passport, and I gave him the other one back. And then but, uh, another train to uh, Rome, where I met yet another agent, and he handed me a Canadian passport. By the way, that's the only name that I use that I still remember. It's uh, I traveled as William Dyson, resident of Toronto. The reason I remember it, because that was the passport with which I entered the United States. And uh, once I was in the US, within two days, I killed William Dyson <clears throat> and became Jack Barsky. How did I do it? Because I had in my luggage in a secret compartment, a bona fide birth certificate for Jack Barsky. And in those days, you could, you could, there was so much freedom in the US as far as travel and getting hotels. I mean, you could register at a hotel and you just write in your name, you know, if it's, you know, Joe Miller, it doesn't matter. Uh, you could get on a plane without showing ID. And, uh, and I was then able, once I was, a, so, so, so just to answer the question, this is how I, I, we made sure that there's no way that Jack Barsky could ever, ever be traced back to Moscow. Right. And so when I, every two years, I would uh, uh, go back to Moscow and, and, and Germany for a little bit. There was never a direct flight. There was always at least one other country in between. Uh, typically, these were sort of neutral countries, Sweden, Finland, Switzerland, uh, countries where the KGB uh, would operate relatively freely. Because in each one of those situations, I would meet another agent. So I would use a passport, that uh, a different passport to enter the, the Soviet Union. So, so even airlines wouldn't know, you know, they, they keep a log as to who, who was the passenger. Airlines wouldn't know that I actually wound up in Moscow. So that's, that's a long answer, but uh, that was very important. Uh, 
because you know if, if if there's any any way to trace me back at least a little bit and say that this guy is is doing some really weird travel i would have been busted did you ever get nervous going through with a fake passport? Because I, I, I can only speak from my point of view. I think I'd be like sweating, thinking, oh, they're on to me. That guy's <laughs> looking at me. There's a guy with a dog over there. And, and, and in your position, if you get caught in America as a Russian spy, they're not going to yeah. pat you on the back. It's not going to be throwing a party for you. So that, that, was there any paranoia at any point when you were traveling? Uh, tense. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the tensest moment was when I... Uh, um, got off the plane in Chicago and then went to, you know, customs to customs and border control. And I was concerned with having to talk with an agent, having some kind of an interview. Um, tense, not nervous. I wasn't sweating. I wasn't shaking, but I was sort of numb. And what I did in situations like that, I gave, there was really only a couple of questions and, and I, I just gave very short answers and they waved me right through. After a while, this border crossing became sort of routine. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew it worked. And, uh, you know, and the most, to me, the most dangerous moment was, uh, you know, pretending to be a Canadian in the United States because I didn't have a Canadian accent. Right, Canadians talk differently from Americans. So, and uh, you know, I also traveled light, and I had come, I had come in from to Chicago from Mexico City, um, and my luggage didn't look like the luggage of somebody uh, who who was uh, you know having a good time in, in Mexico, and I also had a shortwave radio in my luggage, which was a legit radio you can buy it in a store but you know if, if some really alert uh, individual in, at customs they did go through my my luggage had you know had an idea saying well let's let's talk to this fellow a little more so i was worried about that but that was the there was one other moment that was uh, as tense and that was my interview with the social security administration these two were where i was tense other than that I, I did all right. Uh, I'm a I'm a stoic. Uh, yeah. I I just I just don't get very emotional when it comes to stuff that happens or that could happen. With the social security, I don't know how it works in America. I think in England it's like a passport or out like that. Were you nervous because they they ask you a lot of different questions, don't they? That like you'd have to no, have the answers but, to. I actually, when I applied for social security, that was a requirement. You actually had to go into the office uh, for an interview. All right, because I was at the time I was already uh, according to my birth certificate I was already like thirty three years old, and that was not uh, it was unusual but also possible because there were some some uh, workers that were exempt from social security at the time, like farm workers and employees of churches and religious organizations. <clears throat> But I had to go and answer questions, and I was prepared. I prepared myself for any question that uh, I figured they could throw at me. What really did the trick, though, I dumbed myself down. My cover story was that I had spent the preceding 10 years on a farm. So I dumbed myself down. I, 
I didn't really comb my hair. I, I, I rubbed soap in the eyes so they would look red. And so I, I really looked like a, like a country boy. <laughs> and so the, there were not too many questions. And I, again, I like question number one. Uh, so you, you, you never had a social security card? No, why not? Well, I didn't need one. I didn't even explain why I didn't need one because that would have, that would have been too much. I didn't need one. Okay, all right. And that was the end of it. <laughs> right, right. No, she did ask, and so, did you work? Yes, where? Oh, I worked on, on Miller's Farm, upstate New York. Uh, and and there was this was the third question. And once, at that point, she knew, yeah, I was exempt. So now that I'm in New York, I need a social security card. Well, let's give it to him. I still have the same social security numbers, by the way. <laughs> did you find it easy? adapting to American life because coming from East Germany that must have been a big culture shock and you're going from like the food you were saying in Moscow and stuff like that to Burger Kings and things like that in America that must have been a bit of a culture shock. Um, not a big shock but uh, I wasn't really well prepared to, you know if for, for a good two years I was very very careful I was aware that I really didn't know much about what it's like to live as an American the KGB was not able to really give me any insights. And, and the lady that uh, was my tutor had been out of uh, the United States for a long time. So her knowledge was not up to date. Uh, there's a lot of mistakes, small mistakes that uh, you can make that are a giveaway that you're really not an American. The only thing that they taught me uh, was that when, you, when Americans eat, which is not the case anymore today, but when Americans eat, so they have the knife, the knife in the right hand and the fork in the left hand, and then they cut the meat and then they put the knife down and the fork because they're dumb enough, they can't eat with both of them at the same time. Right. <laughs> that, that was still true, um, but you know, I was on a practice trip to Canada before I went to the US and there I made a really interesting mistake. I, uh, <clears throat> I went to a restaurant and uh, uh, had some pizza and ordered a, a beer and that beer came in bottles. And uh, so I asked the waiter for a bottle opener and he looked at me like, huh? <laughs> so he took the bottle and he twisted the top off. We didn't have those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and there, there are many other mistakes that you can make. And so I, I was lucky in that A, I was very careful, and B, my first job, uh, I happened to become a messenger and uh, and uh, work for two years uh, as a full-time messenger. I carried stuff on a bicycle, which paid well enough, much better than what, what the, the foot messengers got. They had minimum wage, but there were always times when there was nothing to do. You sit in the office and you just listen. And you just watch, you observe. I'm a, uh, I, I'm, I have excellent observation skills. I didn't know that. I just knew what I, and so, and then I had, when, when I, by the time I entered uh, life as a professional, I also had another three years at, at a college behind me. So at that point, it was next to impossible to even think that I'm not real. I had, and I still have it, a trace of an accent, 
but that was so easy to explain because you know I had a stock answer. So you know, you you sound like a European. I don't know what it's maybe Dutch. I says, yeah, I know it's it's German. I grew up bilingual. My mother's maiden name was Schwartz. She was German, and the story in New York that that flies says. So so there, there's only one fellow who became a good friend of mine, who once and that was already in my oh man that was already in the U.S. for a dozen years. He one time came into my office. I was a, <clears throat> was a director at Prudential. He closed the door and he said, hey, Jack, I've been wondering about you. There's something, something with you as a person that sort of doesn't all fit together. I'm wondering one day, you may want to tell me. And then he went, and that was it. So it's the only fellow, there was nobody else. <laughs> Were you ever paranoid about like your phones being tapped or anything like that? When, when you first got there, did the paranoia get less and less the more years you were there? Or were no, you no, still no, 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 that, no. That, that was not an issue. So here's the thing. Uh, I uh, particularly early on, I uh, went on uh, surveillance detection routes on a regular basis to make sure that, you know, nobody's following me. And since I was extremely well trained, uh, when I determined nobody was following me, I felt safe. There's, and also, uh, <clears throat> I put some uh, put some things. I, I arranged some things in my apartment that if somebody were to actually search the apartment, they would be disturbed. They were, uh, and it's not the hair over the over the door. It's some things that <clears throat> I give you one example. Uh, I had a chest of drawers. And the top drawer, there was an overhang. So in other words, it, you wouldn't quite, the, the, you, it would look the same when the drawer was slightly open or totally closed. You, the only way you see the difference is if you look at it from below. So if somebody opened this drawer and then put it back, I left it eight millimeters open, you know, things like that. So, so I, wasn't, I was never worried uh, that I was actually under observation, and that was actually the truth. Nobody in counterintelligence knew, had a clue until uh, a defector from the KGB <coughs> uh, gave him my name. And you got like, a, what is it called, a red alert or something like that, where you got told, yeah, yeah, yeah. danger or something yeah. like that. So, um, okay, so, so there were two events. There was one event that spooked them, and it didn't spook me because I was able to determine that this was actually a break-in. <clears throat> in 1986, there was a break-in into my apartment. People stole a stereo, uh, and uh, and uh, ate a cup of yogurt and threw threw it half-eaten on the floor. And it was <clears throat> it was like unpleasant, but I I I did. You know, counterintelligence measures. I, I went on, on my surveillance route. I wrote myself a letter from a fictitious address that was not entirely sealed. So, in other words, when 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 letters are opened mechanically by machines, so when they get closed again, there um, there is no more uh, not moistened spot in the seal. Okay. And and I 
And I also saw that at least one of the markers that I said wasn't disturbed. So I, to me, that was uh, that was a break, and and I was right. Uh, the the center almost wanted to keep me back when I told him uh, about this in Moscow, but I convinced him that no, I'd be okay. Uh, 1988, and I know this now in hindsight uh, because I met a fellow who was also an illegal, also in New York at the same time. I met him many years later in, in Germany. Um, 1988, something spooked the KGB. FBI, I, we, have, we don't have a clue what that was, but they had reasons to believe that somebody gave up his, my, my friends, and my name, and that we were about to get busted. And to just make a long story short, it was not true. Right. And the, reason right. That, the reason that they figured out it wasn't true, uh, they said, my, my friend went back to Moscow, and he stayed there for a couple of months, and then they said, ah, false alarm, you can't go back. Right, right. So, 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 in my case, it was different. You know, talking a red alert. Uh, I had a, a, we had a, a set of signals uh, for very basic, uh, you know, info, to transmit basic information, such as I would always uh, set a signal when I was back in New York. These were predetermined spots that uh, both the the person who sets the signal and the person who reads it would know. And I had one that was on my route to work where uh, several uh, signs could be placed, such as um, uh, uh, a call for a meeting, which was unusual, but it would have been possible. I never met anybody uh, KGB in the territory of the United States. And one, and the most important one was the danger signal. That was a red dot. And it was when I saw that red dot, it was about the size of my fist. <laughs> it's the only thing that went through my mind is, oh, shit. <laughs> and then I just, and what that meant really, danger, get out of the country. Just don't, don't, don't pack luggage, you know, go get the, your reserve documents and make sure that you, you, you take cash with you. And, and make your way to Canada. And the plan was to then, you know, getting exfiltrated from Canada. But I didn't do that. I went straight to work. Uh, and of course, I was completely, I was completely non-productive that day. I was, a, I was a programmer at the time. I was just staring at my computer screen and pretending to work. It didn't work, and it just it was my mind was racing. Here's the reason: uh, the the KGB did not know this. I had a at the time 18 month old daughter in the United States, and I had I had I really fell in love with this girl, and you know, and I have a nowadays I have a, an 11 year old still, and I watched her grow up. I mean, if you if you watch. Uh, in, in my case, it's little girls. Uh, if you watch them grow up, there's, there's no way that you can't love them. And so I had this this deep love for her, and I was at least trying to figure out a way to take care of her, because her mother was not. She, if she had been uh, uh, 
if she had been raised by her mother alone, she would have uh, uh, grown up poor. So, and I had not found a way to do this, to, you know, channel money into her mother so she would be able to take care of the kid. And I was just thinking and thinking. And so I stalled. Um, and stalling was possible because, you know, maybe I was sick, right? Uh, maybe, <clears throat> uh, yeah, well, maybe I was sick. So then, but then uh, about a week later, I got my first uh, Morse code shortwave transmission that was a little more explicit, says, you got to get out of the country, use emergency procedures. We have reason to believe that the FBI is about to arrest you. And um, I still stalled because the radio could have been broken. I could be in a hospital. One time I actually was not able, and I was supposed to confirm receipt of uh, that message by a, a signal someplace. And I didn't set the signal <clears throat> again. Uh, there was precedent once I, uh, I wasn't functional because I had an accident. And for three weeks, I was silent. I couldn't do anything uh, with regard to telling them what was going on. <clears throat> so they waited long enough until about, you know, three weeks was over. And then somebody actually came to talk to me very briefly. There was a, a morning in December. I was standing on a platform of the, uh, the elevated platform of a subway, the A train. It, weren't, it was quite early, it was maybe 6.30, it was still dark. And there's this, this short man who comes up to me from my right, very, uh, uh, very short and uh, dressed in black. Uh, you wouldn't pay attention to the guy, except he came so close that he could whisper in my ears, you got to come home or else you're dead. And that, of course, was the moment where I knew I couldn't stall anymore because now they knew that I knew. So if I now not leave, that would be very suspicious. You know, this is what, why is he, why is, why is he not following the order? So I had this, brilliant idea i would just uh tell him that i can't i can't come back because i am infected with hiv aids and uh, i i wrote this and i put this in a letter in secret writing which they probably received a couple of weeks thereafter i knew when they had it because that's when the daily radio transmission stopped and at that point i knew that they knew I had AIDS <laughs> and they believed it. They had no reason not to believe it. I mean, because, you know, I, I was highly regarded. Uh, I had a lot of dollar savings in Moscow. Uh, I, I, was, I was going home as a conquering hero uh, with a, a special uh, position in society. I didn't know that, nobody knew that the wall would come down a year later. But so they, they had no reason for, to think that I made that up. So they told my German family that I was dead and, <laughs> and never ever checked on me uh, because there was no reason. They had other things to do. I, of course, didn't know that this was gonna work. So I, I, I made sure that for about three months, uh, I wasn't predictably at a certain spot in a certain location at a certain time. So I would vary the times I would go to work. I would, would vary 
which subway station I would go to and so forth. But after three months, nothing happened. The FBI really wasn't on me and uh, the KGB would left me alone. So I breathed a sigh of relief and sort of started working on uh, my forgetfulness, which was at one point was pretty successful. At one point, I didn't even remember that I once was a spy. For like a normal person looking in, if I had the KGB potentially, they're sometimes not that nice to defectors either, or I'm not saying you were a defector, but someone who's going against the grain sort of thing, and you've got the FBI, a lot of people would keep them up at night. Do you know what I mean? Like going to bed thinking, oh, tomorrow could be the day, because I know where you live. No, 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 no. See, this this is what people think. And, uh, you know, you can't do that. Uh, you, If you think about this all the time, you're going crazy. You know, I, I lived a high risk life, and I very rarely ever thought about what if. I only prepared to, uh, and my mode of operation was to prepare well enough to prevent the what if, yeah. but I did not speculate what would happen if, because there was just no good reason to do that. And as uh, by the way, that that uh, that kind of that applies to everybody in normal life. Don't speculate about all the bad things that could happen to you, because most likely they will then, because yeah. you, you're living your life in fear, and fear is the the worst um, emotion that you can have to to, to base decisions on. Did you start enjoying the American lifestyle after so many years there? And if you yeah, were a sure. child and stuff oh, like yeah. that, was it was a returning point? Because I can imagine if you were there like eight, nine years, you'd start thinking, oh, East Germany doesn't seem like a holiday park now. And I'm mm -hmm. in this company now. I maybe don't fancy going back. Okay, the the enjoyment, if you want to call it that, started when I had my first professional job. That was like, look... It was the first time that I was able to, you know, do something uh, using my my mental abilities. So, you know, in a in a work sort of setting, I had five years of training in the KGB with the KGB. Then I had one year of nothing, just getting the documentation that I needed to go to work. Two years as the bike messenger, and another three years um, um, in college. So we're talking about 11 years of, uh, you know, being sort of homeless in terms of work, right? Yeah. So I get, I get, I, I, and I like programming already in college and I get to uh, MetLife and I get to write code. And that was so much fun. And, and I get to interact with a bunch of other smart people. Um, and within about, Three, four months, I told a friend, he said, I, I told her, I said, I can't believe they pay me for, for what I'm doing. So I really, this, I, I love this, you know, creating something from nothing. Uh, and this would have been better than chemistry. <clears throat> and, and of course, when, when you are good at this and, and you're, um, um, you're passionate about the job, you get tougher assignments. And, and I, you know, I got on the, call list for night calls I worked weekends and I got to a point when I, I didn't admit it to me openly but there was a sense that the spy stuff that I had to do got in the way with my real job yeah yeah I was on my way of becoming what the KGB wanted me to become 
a bona fide American citizen. I hadn't lost my ideology yet. I was still a communist, but <clears throat> it, it softened. It was softened quite a bit. Maybe, maybe I was, I had morphed into a sort of a socialist East German patriot. Uh, but, you know, towards just before the year before I <clears throat> did that resignation thing with the AIDS letter, uh, I actually thought about, you know, one day I, I'm going to have to leave here. I'm going to miss this. That would not have been enough to, to, to stay. What, what caused me to stay was my daughter. But you see, it was a slow, slippery slope in the wrong direction as far as the KGB was concerned. Because <clears throat> did you have a wife or a girlfriend back in, was it East Germany? Yes, I was, married in, I was married in Germany and I had a son with... Uh, uh, this lady. <clears throat> did you have any contact with them whatsoever when you're away? Or did, no, did, only no. only on my uh, uh, every two year trips uh, to Moscow and Berlin, where I was able to meet them. Uh, my German wife knew what I was doing. She she married me knowing that I would leave her pretty soon right. after the wedding. Uh, she was quite all right with this. <clears throat> she had determined that you know she tried a bunch of other men. And none of them me measured up, so she figured she could wait what we thought maybe would be 10, 12 years. Uh, she, I didn't leave her for, for another woman. I left her for a child. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's a weird one. Like you're saying, oh, we thought it would maybe only be 10, 12 years. Like in today's standards, some women would leave the boyfriend if they worked away for two weekends in a month. Do you know what I mean? So like you yeah. can see like the different generation sort of thing, 10 or 12 years, that'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And she believes in ideology as well. She'll think it's for the greater good as well. Yes. And then you, you, you rationalize. And she was fully on board with, uh, you know, my, my, my communist, uh, um ideology she she even said i would move to moscow with you so we were we didn't have a clue we didn't we had no idea what the world was all about uh and we didn't have a clue that you know 10 12 years is a hard time to remain faithful if indeed you want to live sort of a normal life in as an undercover agent because you, it, it, the whole idea for me was to become a normal quote unquote normal american citizen and that includes female companionship <laughs> uh, did, did it come as a shock when you the fbi obviously uh, well they didn't oh, arrest sure, you yeah. but the appreciate because I, I that was quite a few years after had you stopped checking the envelopes oh absolutely things like I, that I told you, uh, Three months after, three months after I mailed that letter to Moscow, after three months, I decided I'm in the clear. Uh, at that point, I destroyed all the spy paraphernalia that I still had. It wasn't a whole lot, <clears throat> and, and I threw that shortwave radio in the in the Hudson River, and uh, and then I worked on my career and on a family. Within a year, we bought a house in the suburbs. Within Another year, we we had a son, and so now I I was focused on you know the American dream. You know, do well with your career, earn more money, get a better house, get a better car, get a second car, get a house with a pool. Oh, it was all good. <laughs> and, 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 like I, I, like uh, when when it actually came. 
did you have no inkling whatsoever? Is that you just totally, because obviously you've been trained in these sort of things and to come as a total no, shock to you. I, if, if I was still even the least bit suspicious, uh, I would have maybe had an inkling that something is not right. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I lived in the countryside in Pennsylvania at the time, <clears throat> and uh, uh, there were fundamentally no neighbors except for one house that was only when it bordered on mine. Everything else was wide open. And that house, at one point, I got another set of occupants, and that was the FBI. Uh, if I'm suspicious, I'm just like, trying to figure out what's going on, nothing. I was completely like convinced that there's no way that I could ever be found. And I was right, except there was one way that I didn't think of and that's a defection. And so we had a fellow who <clears throat> uh, one day wound up uh, in, uh, in one of the Baltic states uh, at the British embassy and told MI6 what he had, and he had a lot. He had a lot of information that he smuggled out of uh, KGB archives over the many years. And amongst that phenomenal amount of information, there was a little bit of a note, not much, that there is a Jack Barsky who was an undercover agent someplace in the Northeast. And so the FBI didn't have much of a problem finding Jack Barsky because there aren't too many of those in the US. And they narrowed it down very quickly because uh, when they checked with social security, there was only one Jack Barsky who got his social security uh, number quite late. So they knew. And then they spent close to three years watching me because all they knew was that I was an undercover agent. And they also rightly speculated that I was highly trained because I wasn't there. Nobody caught me in 10, in 19 years. At that point, it was 19 years. And then eventually, when they decided I wasn't active anymore, they introduced themselves. And that was a big surprise. And that's what I mean, because you never got uh, arrested or anything like that. Because I can imagine you're like a prize asset, because America want to know as much as they can about the people that are spying on them. And if you yes. cooperated sort of thing, give them a little bit of information, is that how it works? Yes, you are You are some, somewhat uh, better educated than most people in that respect. A lot of people ask the question, so why didn't you go to jail? Well, that would have been stupid. I mean, what good do I do uh, the American government, the American people in jail? I would just cost them money. Uh, so it is, it is standard procedure uh, for fundamentally all intelligence services, if you if you catch an enemy agent, you you a you try to turn them, and uh, in my case that wasn't possible. So b that you try to get as much out of them as you can, uh, and apparently I was still pretty useful with regard to what I was able to tell him. I couldn't, as I said before, I couldn't betray anybody. I had no names, uh, but I could tell him about you know methods and operations. And uh, uh, and I also did some consulting in some cases, not a lot, but uh, I worked with the FBI as a as a trusted source for, for I think about fifteen years, until I became a public figure. At that point, I would became a private citizen. Yeah, it was a big surprise when 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 this fellow came up to me and says, "FBI, we would like to talk to you." 
I was, oh, I didn't think I, oh shit, but uh, I, I, this is, I know now how this works, the physiological situation, you know, is this, this the flight, fight response. And so in order to flee, your body, your brain sends most of the blood to your legs, right? right. But the, the FBI guy who, who, who introduced himself, himself to, told me later that I went white as a sheet, so all, my, all the blood went, went out of my face. Did the KGB give you training to say you were still with them and you were still undercover and an FBI agent approached it? Was there a protocol of say nothing, yeah. deny everything, yeah, they'll well, deny you? Well, I, while I was still active, uh, uh, the, uh, if, if, if you get arrested, this is what I was told, deny everything. You know, just like no, that's not true. I'm not. <clears throat> you insist on who you who you are. You 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 feed them the cover story. It was pretty elaborate. You know what I did from birth until I showed up in New York. It was a very elaborate cover story, uh, including, for instance, a chemical factory where I worked for quite some time. Um, which and it wasn't provable that I wasn't there because that factory went up in an explosion. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, deny everything. Once you get to a point that they, when they disclose that they have enough information from a third party that you know lying doesn't make any sense anymore, they told me then ask for a representative of, of the East German Embassy, and then from then on, we'll see what happens. They they always promise that no matter what, you know, just hang in there, we'll get you out. I, I, well, I just didn't know if, like, uh, you watched that many things on spies and things. I thought as soon as you got caught, that was you. Just they just leave you. They deny they even knew you, and then you just left to the wolves. But if oh, you're that's you a, yeah, actually they did that too. I mean, the most famous case was uh, uh, in, just prior to the start of World War II. There was a German journalist by the he was a communist but secret communist by the name of uh, Richard Zorge, Richard Zorge, who operated in Japan. And he sent reports back to Moscow with regard to what Japan was going to do and not going to do uh, if a war starts. The Japanese caught him and he told the Japanese, you know, you know, I'm working with the Soviet Union. Stalin denied it. They let him die. There, there were situations like that. Uh, when, when I was active, the KGB did not operate like that. Anytime when there were people caught, they, they would do everything they can to get them out. And I met a couple that uh, uh, was treated that way. Uh, this was, um, you, you may know about this case. There was a couple that went by the name of Peter and Helen Kroger. They were actually Morrison uh, um, Lana Cohen. Who, who spied uh, in England? Uh, I forgot exactly what uh, port, port is there. Portland Harbor, there someplace. Yeah, I think Portland. There's a Portland you have, and there was uh, some submarine secret submarine research uh, done, and they they worked with a, a Conan Melody who who um, operated as if he were a Australian citizen, and uh, they were caught and spent like seven or eight years in jail in, in England until they were exchanged for somebody. So, so I had uh, living proof that if, if I ever get arrested, the KGB would do everything to get me out. 
when you started working with the FBI and CIA and things like that, did did you look at like your training from Russia and theirs and think they do this better, Russians do this far better? And was there anything like that, or was it all very similar? Well, I don't know how the FBI trains their people. I don't know in detail. Only uh, based on what people told me. As I as I told you, the uh, the training in Moscow for people like me was was extremely elaborate and and uh, as best as they could do it what was missing uh the two elements were missing there was no psychological training whatsoever uh there, i didn't even undergo psych tests nothing uh and and the cultural preparation for you know, operating in, in another country was was insufficient. It was it was pretty bad. Now this is where the the CIA does a much better job. But then again, you know, you got classes of whatever twenty. So you got this one expert that that can you know tell twenty people what they need to know if they say that if they are going to Afghanistan, for instance. So this is a whole different uh, setup. I don't know how the KGB trained their normal agents, the ones that would go under diplomatic cover, I bet you they were in classes, but I don't know if, if they, they got... My training was deficient because they wanted me to do something that they didn't know how to do. Yeah, because I, yeah. I was never trained by uh, a successful ex-undercover illegal, right? Yeah. Except, yeah. except for the, the Kroger's, but, uh, that were illegals undercover in Britain, but by the time I met them, they were already like uh, a little bit up in, in years, and uh, they were like uh, like uh, sextagenarian children. They were just like really lovely, wonderful people, and they always talked about the past, but they couldn't really train me. You know, I just uh, my my uh, relationship with them was to you know, to speak a lot of English with true, with truly with people who are Americans, were Americans, and just get gain the confidence of how they were treated by the KGB that uh, I would be treated the same way. Is it just like a, it's unofficially that every country just spies on each country, or is it just mainly certain countries? Because you hear about spies from countries you wouldn't expect from. Is it, is it just an unofficial law that every country is just sort of spying on? And do you think it still goes on as much now or not? Yeah, there's an, there's an unwritten uh, law that most, that all civilized uh, nations uh, would follow. Um, I would exclude at this point Russia and China from, from that group. Uh, the, the Russians, the Chinese, and obviously countries like North, North Korea and, and Iran. We, I'm talking about civilized Western nations and sort of neutral type nations would, would not react to after they catch an, an enemy spy in a way that they need to throw them in jail or execute them. But if there's their own citizens, that's a whole different story. Yeah. Right? We got our, you know, our traitors, Ames and Hansen are still sitting in jail, and they will die in jail. Uh, they didn't get the death penalty. In Russia, you would get the death penalty still. Wait, and wait, in China, wait. as well. 
we had that guy in England, uh, I can't think what he's called, Alexander Livienko, probably L- saying that L- wrong. Litvinenko. L- 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 yeah, and it, the official story is someone giving something yes. nuclear. And it, yes. to an outside looking in, I'm not one of these, but that, that just looks like an, a real elaborate death. Or is that just what you think happened? Or do you think it's just someone from the West planting it there, so it looks like the Russians have done it on foreign soil, so there's that conflict to create conflict? No, that, but that's pretty much undisputed. Uh, and the the other case, the Skripal case, uh, there's there's enough evidence now that uh, that was the GRU special unit that went tried to uh, kill him. Uh, they this is about Russia. See the the the, the Russian nation is extremely patriotic yeah as a born russian you ha- you have a an attachment to mother russia that i couldn't find as, as strong in the united states for sure not in germany i don't know what what it what what it is in england so if you betray your country that will will uh, be punished as severely as possible and so when they can and when they could, they would go after traders, even on foreign soil. Now, as you may imagine, these are very complicated operations. There are not too many people who can, who can execute those operations. That's why there aren't too many known cases where somebody was attacked that way. Um, the, uh, it's, uh, and, 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 if, and here's my, my speculation. If I was born in, in the Soviet Union, if I was a Russian national, I might not be able to talk to you today. But I didn't betray Russia. Um, yeah. That's, that's huge. It, that makes a big difference. So you, you think well, probably being born in Germany, you haven't got that, obviously not being born in Mother Russia sort of thing, that they wouldn't be as bothered. Do, do you think... Even though it's been so many years, if you were Russian now, do you, do you still think you'd have one one eye over your shoulder? Yes, and I tell you why. <clears throat> um, so you see, when when you look uh, at, uh, at Putin, uh, his his you know the, the way he operates, he is sly as a fox, and he. He likes to send messages to the West, particularly, but also to his own people. He's very good manipulating his own people, and he's very good playing uh, Western statesmen. He, he, he played Donald Trump, and he's playing Biden. So in a situation like that, if I show up in Moscow, you know, an accident can be arranged easily, but, and that sends a message. See, even after so many years, we can still get you. So that's one of the re- one of the reasons they uh, assassinate people. It was to send a message to others: don't do it because we're not, we're going to come get you. Well, Putin so, was in the KJB, wasn't he? I'm sure uh-huh. was, was Putin in the KJB or something like that, or something to do with it. Or I'm sure he had something to do with it, wasn't it? Beforehand, before uh, he who, got into power, about, no. uh, Putin. Oh, Putin, yeah, he was. Oh, he was KGB. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was. Um, he was mid-level. Not. He, he wasn't really an uh, a field agent. He was more of a bureaucrat. 
that doesn't, you know, that makes him not having been an elite KGB agent, but I tell you what, as far as a, as a head of state, he is unequaled in, in, in the history of the last like hundred years. You know, the guy has been able to keep power for 20 plus years, even while his country, the folks that are living outside of the big cities, they are, they're not seeing any progress in the standard of living. There's still uh, places that don't, don't have electricity. And he is, he, he is hugely popular. I mean, the elections are somewhat tampered with, but if they were 100% honest, he still would have been elected. When you're sitting in, um, when Trump got elected and it came out that Russian collusion was to yeah. do with the voting and things, did were you at home just thinking that's just daft? Or, or were you maybe thinking, oh, that could have happened? Or did you just think that was just the Clintons yeah. and things because they got beat? Well, I can, I can prove it uh, because at that time, my book had just come out and I got uh, interviews on cable television. I was on CNN uh, one Saturday afternoon <clears throat> sitting in the uh in in the studio and it was a a good 15 minutes back and forth and they asked me about russian collusion and i told him point blank you 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 shooting at the wrong target that is that grand conspiracy is not possible to keep a secret and right now we have nothing but speculations don't go there that that was a it was a um, you know uh, an, an educated uh, guess, but uh, what what I was what I was telling them afterwards, I said, "Listen, uh, we are what what Putin is really after here is to try to divide the country, because if a divided America is not as strong as a united America, that's bottom line." And uh, you know, I knew a little bit about what uh, we. Uh, we call active measures in the business and that is just like influence across cause um uh havoc in in your in the in the enemy country influence them confuse them and this is what putin did and this is what the russians still do and i was 100 percent right i mean now it's been proven that my educated guest was right on the money it it was a hoax and it and it, it it did a good job, but it what it did, it, it weakened the United States government because our president was constantly under attack. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's like uh, in these lockdowns, we've had the pandemic and stuff. I know it's, I think it was on an Australian program and they were saying Twitter's deleted over 2 million fake Twitter profiles oh, from yeah. China oh, yeah. that were promoting lockdowns. So their whole goal was just to promote lockdowns. Oh, sure. This... Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the uh, right now, these these active measures, they used to be you know, executed via print media primarily and maybe radio television. But now now it's all on the Internet. And uh, there's a you know, I'm I'm pretty well connected with uh, uh, folks in the cybersecurity realm uh, because of my IT background. And there's a conservative estimates will say that at least 20% of what you find on Facebook was created in Russia. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, and the, the, Chinese, the Chinese are now uh, busily imitating. Uh, they have a bit more of a cultural 
uh, issue because uh, they're a little bit behind with regard to Russia. But but there's now enough uh, Chinese, young Chinese people who study in the United States who go back and and can advise you know the folks that create this trouble on the internet how to pretend to be an American online. I'm working with a company. Or let's, let, let me rephrase it. I'm friends with a bunch of folks who work for a company that do the same thing in the United States. They create fake individuals on the internet and then they make them you know, join groups or create their own groups. And then in this case, we were talking more about criminal investigation, you know, to you know, pretend to be a pretty little girl. Yeah. Catch child molesters and stuff like that. It's a it's a jungle out there. So, <laughs> uh, I bet you I have been fallen. I have been uh, fooled by by somebody who wanted to fool me. You got to be careful. And uh, but it's you know the the internet, the World Wide Web is a uh, is a dangerous place these days. Well, yeah, I I only ever noticed there was a, a girl I talked to. She's just psychology and this. A unit in the UK apparently where it's fake profiles and the push, like just say the government puts them out, all the comments underneath. And if you actually click on the profiles, they've got no friends, they've got one picture on, they're just and if they're on Twitter, they've got no followers. And you think there's 500 of these underneath, all with the same message. And some of them have even yeah. copied and pasted the exact same thing. And people started screenshot and you think it's it, it's a weird world out there because opinions on the internet now change policies, don't they? Yes. And that, that's 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 what they're trying to do, isn't it? Push push an agenda across. But but you see, the more sophisticated false individuals, they have lots of friends, they have attorneys, they have phone numbers, they even have passports. Uh, you know, if you if you really want to get to a point where uh, it is very hard to determine whether that person actually exists, and in extreme cases, uh, if you actually need uh, a human being. Who is uh, who is you know a, a real walking human being? You can you can make that individual that you created and attach it to that human being. So the, <laughs> there's all, all kinds of hanky panky that's possible, and and unfortunately, you know these are weapons now. If they're used by the enemy, you've got to use them too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one last question because I've I've held you on for ages here. Um, one last question. Just say you were coming to the end of your time with the KGB and you knew it was coming to the end and America came in and just say the FBI caught you as you were still sending your signals out each week and things like that. And they asked you to be kind of a double agent. Is there any bit of you for the right price that would have done that? Or would you think, knowing what the KGB is like, you think, no, I'd rather keep my legs. The, the only leverage uh, they would have had if, if, if I, I have this child at the time, uh, I didn't join the KGB for money. And um, even though at a, I was at a point where, uh, you know, I, I had lost a lot of my communist uh, ideals and, uh, and I still considered myself a, a citizen of, of East Germany, but I might have cooperated with the Americans if that would have guaranteed uh, a good life for my daughter, but not for money. I, no. No. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I was, a, I was an, an accomplished liar, 
and I did, you know, I did a bunch of like things that people got arrested for, but within inside, I have a, a great sense of integrity. Okay, so within the false life that I lived, I I acted like a honest, uh, trustworthy individual. So that for that doing something, betraying people for money, I don't think I would have done that. No, no. Well, like you say, I just thought I'd ask because you hear that quite a bit, don't you? Double agents in different countries and things like that. And there's obviously certain different people in different situations as well, isn't it? And if someone's got a gun to your head or a gun to your wife and saying, yeah, do this. Oh, oh, yeah. No, this, this, now that, that gets uh, really tricky. And, and I don't think the United States does that, but other countries do that. They will torture your wife or your child next door and then they put pressure on you. Uh, that uh, that pressure is irresistible. You you got to say, okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah, because they, they don't glamorize that side of things with James Bond, and you know what I mean when you see that the James Bond film. It's all just fast cars, fast women, martinis, and things like that. But the reality is very different, like you've explained. So maybe maybe I can end this uh, interview with a with one of my favorite. Uh, uh, pronouncements. So I got two things in, in common with James Bond. It's the initials, JB. And if you look at my children and you look at my three wives, I got beautiful women. <laughs> well, that's the main thing, isn't it? <laughs> but cheers for your time, Jack. You've been absolutely uh, fantastic. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.